Philippians chapter 1. I've entitled my message from this passage of Scripture, A Proper Perspective on Problems. All of us have problems. It's difficult for us to maintain a proper perspective on problems. Paul certainly set the example, and there have been others that have done that. A guy named Robert Reeds raises his hands in the air, his crooked hands, and he says, I have all that I need for joy. That's his refrain. That's his mantra. I have all that I need for joy. His hands are twisted and his feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his own teeth. He can't comb his hair. He can't put on his underwear or any of his clothes. Strips of Velcro hold his shirts together. His speech drags like a worn-out, old, slow-paced audio cassette. Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from driving a car, riding a bike, going for a walk, but it didn't keep him from graduating from high school. He attended uh, Abilene Christian University after high school, from which he graduated with a degree in Latin. Cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at St. Louis Junior College or venturing on five overseas missions trips with cerebral palsy. Robert's disease didn't prevent him then from becoming a missionary. You say, what? A missionary to Portugal. He moved to Lisbon, Portugal, alone, by himself. There he rented a hotel room, and he began studying Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him, because he can't feed himself, who would feed him after the rush hour, and a tutor who would instruct him in the language. Then he stationed himself daily in a park, on a park bench, where he distributed gospel tracts dealing with Jesus Christ. Within six years, he had led over 60 people to Jesus Christ. 60 people. And one of them became his wife, Rosa. Robert is back in the States now, and he speaks to crowds and churches here. They carry him onto the platform in his wheelchair. His stiff fingers open the pages of the Bible But it doesn't take very long before people start weeping with admiration. Not pity, not sympathy, but with admiration and with respect. He holds his bent hands and arms in the air and he repeats that mantra, I have everything that I need for joy, which tells you something. Joy is not based upon circumstances. Joy is not based upon material possessions, certainly for a Christian. Even though his shirts are held together by Velcro, his life is held together by joy. Max Lucado is the one that writes this story. And Philippians is a book about joy, as you well know. It is often themed as the joyful epistle. And joy is 
greatly influenced by our perspective in life. It's not what we have. It's not our circumstances. It is our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is our outlook that determines our joy. Well, let's look at what Paul has to say, a proper perspective on problems. We read these verses. Let's look at the first few Again, verses 12 through 14, I'm in chapter 1 of Philippians. It says, but I want you to know, brethren. Now, Paul is writing to the church back there at Philippi, the believers back there at Philippi who were worried. And so what does he say? I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me, and we're going to recount those, the things that have happened unto me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel whether it be cerebral palsy or having your feet in stocks and your hands in chains, Paul is saying here, it's happened for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the people in the palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. By the way, he mentions chains three times, chains in Christ. Paul was an ambassador in chains. You could literally say, verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, second time, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is how I'm dividing up the passage. First of all, suffering Paul's chains. Suffering Paul's chains in verses 12 through 14. In one deft phrase, in one simple turn of the words, Paul shifts the focus from himself, and they were worried about Paul. They had been won to Christ by Paul. They'd heard about Paul's imprisonment and Paul's difficulties. In one death phrase, Paul shifts the focus from himself to the undeterred purpose of God, and that was the spread of the gospel. The Philippians hadn't seen Paul in four years since he planted the church. He hadn't seen them. And no doubt, many rumors had circulated. Many letters had come. Many people had arrived and and left impressions about how Paul was doing. And so they were concerned. So he's writing them a letter to relieve their concerns about his present condition. And he sums up all of his sufferings. Notice the phrase here. He sums up all of his sufferings and all of his travel with the, verse in, with the phrase in verse 12, the things that have happened unto me, the things that have fallen out unto me. Now, what is he describing here? He's describing what we find in our Bible in Acts chapter 21 through Acts chapter 28. That's what he's describing. We can't reread those chapters, and I can't even really summarize all that happened, but I can give you the highlights, what's happened in those chapters and those four intervening years begins with Paul's arrest at the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews who hated him because he was leading Jews and others to Christ, they hated Paul. He was the leading teacher in Israel, and he got converted to what they considered a cult, a sect called Christianity the way so they hated him and they accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple Paul didn't do that but that's what they either thought or they at least accused him of and a riot started and they were about to kill Paul and the Roman soldiers rescued him and they put him in chains they thought he was some kind of a riotous individual some kind of a dissenter that was causing an upheaval and he did 
unintentionally. The Roman soldiers rescued him, bound him in chains, and they held him in prison. And Paul appeals to Herod, and he's being held in prison, but the Jews take on this vow that they would not eat or drink until they killed Paul. And Paul's nephew, his sister hears about it, and his nephew informs the officials, and they put an armed guard around Paul and a group of soldiers, and they march him to the next city where he's going to have his hearing there in Caesarea to protect Paul from the murderous Jews who want to kill him. He's held in prison there for two years. And he appeals finally to Caesar. He knew he was just in a holding pattern. Herod wasn't dealing with it. And so he appeals after multiple conversations and trials. He says, I want to have my day before Caesar. And so he says, to Caesar you shall go. Again, armed guards, they put him on a boat, and he sails to Rome by way of shipwreck, and he spends a day and a night in the deep, and he lands on an island, he's bit by snakes, he survives, and then finally he makes it to Rome, and there he's in under house arrest. That's how he describes these underlying four years that have taken place. Now he's in Rome, and he's seeing people come and go. He's sharing the gospel as people come and go. And he has the grace to state that all of this has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, all these things that happened, these trials, these shipwrecks, these attempts to kill me, all these things that have gone on, they've happened under the furtherance of the gospel. By the way, furtherance is an interesting Greek word. It means a pioneering advance. It's the idea when engineers, when the Roman engineers would precede the army. The army, of course, would march throughout the Mediterranean world. The engineers preceded them, and they built the roads. They leveled the hills and filled in the valleys and paved the road. And it's the idea of going before for the advancement of the cause. So it's a military term, which means to go before the troops into new territory. That's the word that Paul uses, for the furtherance of the gospel, to build the roads, to pave the way for the advancement of the cause of Christ. He says, that's why I've been in prison, pioneering advancing the gospel. In advancing the gospel, he did. No doubt about it. There's never been a missionary in the history of the world like the Apostle Paul. He did advance the gospel. What does he say here? He says, in these verses, so it became evidence in verse 13 to the whole palace guard. It's the Greek word praetorium. Praetorium is used in the New Testament two different ways. It's to describe a pavement and a building. That's how it's used. And remember when Christ was on trial, they took him to the praetorium and he's tried before the various judges there and the high priests make their accusations against him. That's called the praetorium, referring to the pavement, the building. But generally, it's used to describe the praetorian guard. The praetorian guard were the crack soldiers 
of the emperor. The Praetorian Guard were the personal military escort that was stationed in Rome in case there was an uprising that they could put it down. In case there was an invasion, they could put it down to protect the emperor and the senate. That's what he's referring to in verse 13. It has become evident to the whole palace guard the best of the Roman soldiers were hearing the gospel is what he's saying. Why is that? Well, it's because every six hours, their shift was six hours, a different praetorian guard, a soldier, was chained to Paul. He was in chain. He was chained to a, a soldier, a praetorian guard. Every six hours, 24 hours a day, so four soldiers a day were chained to the Apostle Paul. And what do you think they heard? What do you think they saw? By the way, Paul could receive guests and speak with them. He wrote letters, of course. We call them the prison epistles. There were 9,000 guards, and you figure up several thousand, if they changed out all the ones, several thousand could have been chained to Paul during his Roman imprisonment. And they heard the gospel. They saw his holy life. When Paul got down on his knees, when Paul spent time in prayer, they watched it. When Paul was writing his letters, they looked on. And when Paul shared the gospel with the people that came to hear him, they heard it as well. And Paul says, this has all happened for the furtherance of the gospel. How many times it would be easy to say, well, I'm in prison. What good can I do? Paul didn't look at it that way. He saw himself as an ambassador in chains. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that many of them were saved. And those of Caesar's household, some of Caesar's own servants got saved. Not just soldiers, but other servants got saved. And he sent his greetings to them in the book of Romans because they got saved hearing Paul. He was a missionary in chains. It's amazing what God uses God used Moses' rod. God used Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon had the candles in the pitcher or the lamps in the pitchers, and then they broke them and, and defeated the Midianites. Used Moses' rod. Uses Midian's pitchers. God uses all kinds of things. Used David's sling to accomplish his will. And he used Paul's chains. I'd love for all of us to get that kind of a mindset that God can use grocery shopping for somebody else, changing a tire, meeting someone's need that we really don't know. Paul didn't know these soldiers. He didn't know these servants, but he got to know them. God can use the simple things in our life as a bridge to reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's chains. I'm sure Susanna Wesley probably felt chained to her family because she had 19 children, two who became 
Charles and John Wesley, which those two preachers shook two continents. They shook Europe, and they certainly shook America. She probably felt chained to her children. Fanny Crosby probably felt that she was chained because she was blinded by a doctor's mistake in the first days of her life. But she wrote thousands of poems which were put to music, and we sing hundreds of them still today. Fanny Crosby's poems. She probably felt chained to blindness, but she used it for God's glory. Most of us need the eye of faith as well as faithfulness to rejoice in what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God didn't do. Let me say that again. Most of us need to rejoice in what God is going to do and can do through us instead of complaining about what God did not do. Isn't it true that often with a whiff of persecution, it seems to put backbone in believers' lives, otherwise somewhat lackadaisical Christian. We see that around the world. Persecution seems to embolden and strengthen and fortify Christians. And that's exactly what's taking place here. He's going to talk about it, and we're going to read it. By the way, that's exactly what happened to those Wheaton College graduates in the 1950s when they went down to South America and they went to the Aka Indians, a very primitive tribe, and after several attempts they landed and instead of giving the gospel, they were all murdered. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Roger, forget his last name, Ogodian or something like that. All five of them were killed, murdered. Their wives went back and led that whole tribe to Jesus Christ. But more than that, it started a missionary movement, not just in Wheaton College, where, men, everybody from Wheaton College was going to the mission field, but all across America for really about two decades, the 50s and the 60s, hundreds and thousands of Bible college students went to the mission field, maybe one of the biggest mission movements in America's history because of the problem, because of the death, because of the martyrdom. Unforeseen results as a result of problems or persecution and death. So we see, first of all, Paul's chains, his ministry, his suffering in chains brought about great ministry. Look at verses 15 through 19. Slander, Paul's critics. Let's read these verses, starting in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Now, wait a minute. Paul is rejoicing in this, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add to my afflictions or add affliction to my chain, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Wait a minute. He's rejoicing that the gospel is preached. 
And yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You get that? Paul is saying, I'm going to be delivered as you're praying. Yeah, I bet you they're praying diligently now. So slander. Let's look at these verses. Amongst Bible believers today, there's kind of a false idealization, a picture of what first century Christianity was like. It was like every church was pastored by the Apostle Paul and Peter and whatever, and they were just going great guns for God. Certainly they were spreading the gospel, but they had problems. We sometimes, I think, idealize and immortalize somewhat the early church. They had problems in that day, the very same problems that we have today. They had false religion. They had carnal believers. All you got to do is read the book of Corinthians and you realize they had problems in the early church and they had problems at the church of Philippi. They had problems. And even though some of the praetorian guard was being converted and some of Caesar's household were being converted, many Christians were encouraged to become bold, he says. They see my chains and they become emboldened. They hear about the martyrs in in South America and they become emboldened to follow. Paul says some of them are becoming emboldened to witness, but there was a darker side to the situation as well. And he mentions them. Paul had his critics. Everybody has critics. You can't move forward without having critics. You're going to have resistance. And Paul had his critics. He had appealed to the emperor, and depending upon how his case turned out, how that whole case turned out, he could bring Christianity under greater scrutiny and believers under severe persecution. So some of them were sitting back and saying, well, if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, you know, we wouldn't be under the threat that we're under. We may be forced to go underground completely as a result of your testimony and your preaching. Some of them were probably saying, well, Paul is constantly rushing headlong where wiser and cooler heads would go slow. Why is he in such a hurry? Why isn't he more cautious? Why does he have to make such big plans? Why the audacious public trial that he keeps going through, spotlighting Christianity and taking this gospel to Rome and taking the gospel throughout the Roman Empire? Who does he think he is? There's thinking going on like that. Criticism of Paul, his motives, his tactics, his desires. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Envy is the internal side. We get envious inside. Strife is the outworking of that envy. One's internal, one's external. Some people talk up Christ in the church and out of it. But they're really not sincere. They're using it as a cloak to attack those that God is using because they're envious of them and they're strife-laden. There are pugnacious Christians. There are those that are always looking for a fight in Christianity who love a fight 
And instead of fighting against sin and fighting for souls, they turn their sights on other soldiers, other Christian soldiers. That's not how God wants us to live. And we can fall into that trap, folks. You and I can fall into that trap. Not everybody's going to have our standards. Not everybody's going to sing the style of music that we do. Not everybody's going to hold up holiness the way we might. Not everybody's going to cut the doctrine as closely as we would. And it's easy for us to start criticizing everybody else out there. Well, they're not doing it the way they should. They're not doing it the way we do. But Paul is saying, if the gospel is preached, I'm still going to rejoice. And we should have that attitude. Maybe that's not how we would do ministry. Maybe that's not how we see the scripture telling us to do ministry. But if the gospel is being preached, let's not fight them. Maybe one-on-one we can correct and we can have a conversation, but let's not treat them as the enemy. Paul says, I'll rejoice that the gospel is being preached. They maybe have been promoting, and if you read between the lines and you study what's going on here, some were thinking, well, if we preach the same message, Rome's going to think this message is taking over and all the pagan gods are going to fall into disrepute. So let's get rid of Paul because he's the ringleader because all these people are preaching that same message and they were preaching it maybe to get Paul martyred. Matter of fact, many commentators say Paul was martyred because of this very reason. Envy and strife, preaching the gospel by those who weren't sincere in their preaching. They were basically trying to get rid of Paul. Look at verse 16. He says, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition and not sincerely supposing to add affliction In the old King James, it says preaching in contention, which means it's the idea to gain support. They were preaching it to get people on their side, to gain support for their view. And uh, they were really asking the wrong question. They were asking the question, whose side are you on? They were trying to amass people to their side. And instead of asking, have you trusted Christ, they were saying, whose side are you on, ours or Paul's? Unfortunately, that kind of religious politicking, that's really what was going on. And Paul had to deal with that. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. He had to deal with that at Corinth. He's dealing with it here. It was religious politicking. Whose side are you on? And the truth is, We're on the side of Christ. It shouldn't be our personal agenda. It should be the cause of Christ that we're promoting. Not our view of Christianity. We're all going to have a view. But when it comes to contending with other believers, it's the cause of Christ. It's the kingdom of God. It's still with us today. And that kind of practice hurts the kingdom. Before unbelievers I'm talking about. So criticism, Paul got criticism. Criticism is hard to take when you're in a place of suffering. Criticism is just hard to take when you're going through difficult circumstances. It's like kicking the guy while he's down. That's where Paul was. But you don't read it in his letter. 
You don't see it coming out in his words. Paul's attitude was, if Christ is preached, I'm going to rejoice. Even if the preacher maybe doesn't believe his message, if the gospel is going out and people hear that gospel message, then they get saved through it. I'm going to rejoice, even if it causes me greater problems and more severe persecution. I will rejoice. It was conceivable that the apostle would be found guilty and martyred as a Roman criminal. He mentions that in verses 20 and 21. Look at, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Paul was like anybody else. He could curb his message. He could experience fear and be intimidated that his life could be cut short because of his message. But he's asking for their prayer. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm ready to die in defense of the gospel, he says. I don't think that's what he's thinking is going to happen, at least at this point in his life, because he goes on. For, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I die, I go to heaven. But if I live, I'm gonna, I want to I stay true. I want to uh, stand up for the gospel. Pray for me. What he's saying here. So he understood it was conceivable he would be found guilty and be martyred as a Roman criminal. However, I think Paul fully expected to be set free. Look at verse 24 in the same chapter. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful and being confident of this. Paul says, I have confidence, I'm going to be released. I'm going to see you again. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith. So he fully expected to be set free. That's why he writes to Philemon living there at, in that city, and he says, prepare for me a place to stay. He said, I'm going to come there, and I'm going to stay with you, when he wrote the book of Philemon. Prepare a guest room for me. So there's a hopefulness. There's joy in this epistle, and there's a hopefulness that he believes he's going to be released from prison. And that's while he's in prison, Paul has a perspective of joy, a perspective of hopefulness. You know, the two greatest preachers, maybe in American history, the two greatest preachers that shook America uh, before we really formed ourselves as a nation were the two evangelists that came out of England, John Wesley, who I mentioned earlier, and George Whitfield. They preached to huge crowds. Benjamin Franklin recorded George Whit, and I believe Benjamin Franklin never got converted. But he was so enthralled by George Whitfield's preaching, he went to hear him preach because George Whitfield could gather a crowd between five and 10,000 people and preach to the entire crowd from the back of a wagon, and everybody could hear him perfectly without any kind of amplification. 10,000 people hearing George Whitfield preach, and Benjamin Franklin marveled at it. They brought about what we call the first great awakening. George Whitfield and John Wesley really 
formed our country's faith because it had really petered out from the time of the pilgrims who came here as persecuted Puritan believers that went from England to Europe and then to America. That faith had pretty much petered out and died out. So we were pretty much a pagan nation. The preaching of these men and others as well that came from England brought a great gathering of souls. Hundreds of thousands of people were converted in that great awakening. John Wesley and George Whitfield were preaching at the same time. They traversed the east coast of our country from Georgia all the way up into the New England states. They were very different in their theological background, as probably many of you know. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan Church, was an Arminian in his theology. He was Arminian. In other words, he believed that you could lose your salvation. They even factored in some works there. He was Arminian. George Whitfield was a follower of John Calvin. So he was a Calvinist. He was a five-point Calvinist. They were on opposite ends theologically and the doctrine. And sometimes people tried to pit them against one another because their backgrounds and their theology was so different, but they were both leading thousands and thousands of people to Jesus Christ. It's reported that someone asked John Wesley, do you expect to see George Whitfield in heaven? <laughs> they were baiting him. And his answer surprised him. He said, no, I do not. <laughs> So the follow-up question, then you don't think that George Whitfield is even a converted man? And this was Wesley's response. Of course he's a converted man. Of course he's a converted man, Wesley said. But I do not expect to see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far away that I won't be able to see him. That was a humble response between men who disagreed theologically. It was the right response. Proper perspective is so often what we need in life. Paul believed that God allowed all these difficulties, his personal difficulties, to serve an eternal purpose. There are many people here today that are going through difficulties and trials and hardships. You know, my desire would be that you would lift your eyes and I would lift my eyes and say, God, whatever is happening in my life, I know that you have a greater divine purpose. I know that you have a greater eternal purpose than just these difficulties on a temporal way. I hope that characterizes your line of reasoning. In our text today, we've met a man who was wrongly imprisoned, unjustly criticized, but still very positive in his mindset. We should too. We should maintain that same kind of mindset. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, his life, his story, his letters inspired by you. We thank you that even in a much greater way, your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, always had the right attitude. 
even through his suffering, suffering like no man ever endured. So, Lord, we want to take that lesson. We want to apply it to our circumstances. Maybe life is wonderful for many people right now. I hope it is. And there's no real difficulties, but we know that they will come. And we pray that you'll give us a Bible-centered perspective as we go through life. That we'll rejoice, that we'll give thanks, that we'll see that whatever is brought into our life It can be a tool, whether it be chains or a sling or a rod or a pitcher. It can be used for your glory and the advancement of your cause. That's our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.